Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show once again. Just want to remind all of you that I am on tour doing stand-up across the country right now. If you live in Boston, Nashville, D.C., Arlington, Virginia, Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, or New York City, head to adamconover.net to get tickets to come see me do a brand new hour of stand-up in your area. And of course, if you want to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash adamconover where you can get bonus podcast episodes, see exclusive stand-up I don't post anywhere else, and join our live Patreon book club. That's patreon.com slash adamconover. Now, let's get to it. I know it seems like everything is on fire right now in human society, sometimes quite literally in the case of the fires in Yosemite National Park. Oh, and then of course there's climate change, there's the fact that people are getting their rights taken away, Uh, there is looming economic catastrophe, things look very bad. If you're like me, at times like this, you take some solace in things like the James Webb Space Telescope, which from its perch out there in space is doing one of the greatest scientific accomplishments in human history. It is literally peering back beyond the beyond to the very beginnings of our universe, providing an important sense of scale to our problems now. I mean, yeah, sure, we may be destroying our planet and each other right here in 2022, but with the old JWST, we can see entire galaxies being gobbled up by black holes. It's pretty fucking awesome. Now, look, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but there is a lot of solace in the fact that these incredible scientific accomplishments are within the realm of human achievement, that despite all of our flaws, we can still do some incredible things. We can understand the deep origins of ourselves and of our universe. And we can do all of that despite the fact that on a geological time scale, humans have only been here for an eye blink. We've only been around a couple hundred thousand years, whereas mammals, the class of critter that we're a part of, have been around for a couple hundred million years. And when mammals started, the Earth was dominated by giant fucking lizards walking around and stomping on things until they were destroyed by an asteroid that killed all of them, ending their reign of 165 million years. I mean, these are some crazy timescales. Now, look. You've heard all of that before, right? It's one of the first facts any kid learns. Big lizards killed by a space rock. But just for a second, stop and appreciate what that means. Try to learn it again as though you're hearing it for the first time. A true fact about the spot that you stand on today is that hundreds of millions of years ago, gigantic lizards walked around on top of it until a rock from space murdered them and then slowly mammals gained dominance over the entire world. That is some crazy shit. So let's ask, how did it happen? What about mammals made us so incredibly successful that we were able to take over the Earth? And furthermore, why were mammals the animals that became sentient in the first place? Why were we the ones that built self-driving cars and iPhone games and Supreme Courts and James Webb Space Telescopes? Why didn't dinosaurs get to the point of writing constitutions that gave rights to people and then taking the rights away as part of a revanchist right-wing assault on dino-democracy? I mean, seriously. This is a serious question. How and why did this happen? Well, today on the show, we have an incredible guest to help us dive into the deep history of our species and appreciate again how wild and vast it truly is. Steve Brusati is a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of Edinburgh. 
He wrote a bestseller a few years ago called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, and his new book is The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, a new history from the shadow of the dinosaurs to us. He is one of the most acclaimed paleontologists and science communicators alive on the planet today, and I could not be more thrilled to have him on the show. Please welcome Steve Brasati. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Really excited to uh, talk mammals and books and fossils and prehistory with you today. Yeah, this is going to be a really fun one. Sometimes we do some some rather serious topics on the show, uh, but this time we're going to have a lot of fun talking about mammals. I guess it was pretty serious for the dinosaurs, though. <laughs> they didn't come out so well in the story. Um, I, I want to ask, the name of your new book is Rise and Reign of the Mammals. And I just want to start by asking, why do you say uh, the reign of the mammals, considering that, you know, my understanding is there's, uh, you know, arthropods still beat us by uh, many, many tons in terms of biomass, right? Uh, there's not as many mammal species as there are other, uh, other animals in terms of the number and, and uh, total of them on the earth. So why do you say the reign of the mammals? Well, in part because uh, for a book title, there's some nice alliteration there. <laughs> sure. and it plays off, you know, a common, a common trope, let's say, uh, but I think a useful trope of just thinking about evolution and thinking about what, what in this case is a story of 325 million years of fossils and of evolution and of change, uh, you know, a story of, of mammals and our ancestors navigating, surviving volcanoes and asteroids <laughs> and global warming and ice ages ultimately culminating in us and in the 6,000 other species of mammals that share our world. And in many ways, we do reign supreme today, at least in the sense that uh, humans are mammals. We are a sublime species in both good and bad, and we uh, have affected the planet unlike any animal ever. But also, there's such a range of mammals that share our world, and I think we don't always appreciate them. You just think about everything mm. from the dogs and cats that are our pets to bats and elephants and whales. Whales are the biggest animals that have ever lived in Earth history. They're alive today and they are mammals. So although, yes, there are some groups of animals like arthropods, beetles, let's say, that have many more species than the 6,000 species of mammals. Uh, it really is a world today where mammals are incredibly important uh, and fill so many ecological roles. They live all over the world. And let's face it, we are a mammal. And so I think we are always interested <laughs> in our own story. And that's what this story is. At least through self-aggrandizement, we'll want to say that mammals reign because we yes. consider ourselves to reign <laughs> in many ways, although it's debatable whether or not we do or whether we should um well okay let's let's go to the beginning of the story where where did mammals come from steve <laughs> i think uh, there is a, a bit of a a misconception let's say and i think this comes across sometimes in in textbooks or museum exhibits this idea that the dinosaurs had their day this big asteroid came down killed off the dinosaurs and then the mammals mm -hmm. evolved to take the place of the dinosaurs. Now, that's that's in part that's true, and, and we can dive into this. There was a six-mile-wide asteroid that smashed into the Earth 66 million years ago, and T-Rex was there, Triceratops was there. They did not survive. Mammals did, and mammals yeah. then filled a lot of those roles that dinosaurs once filled, and mammals got bigger, and mammals spread around the world. So mammals did assume some dominance from the dinosaurs, let's say, but mammals actually go back a lot farther. Mammals were there when the asteroid hit, and they were there long before the asteroid. And the first mammals, believe it or not, 
their origin story is the same as the origin story of dinosaurs, both really? dinosaurs and mammals. Yep, they go back to about 225 million years ago, the Triassic period. This was the time of the supercontinent when all of the land was gathered together as one. Pangea? Is that That's the supercontinent? I remember right. the PBS that I watched as a kid very well. I remember Pangea. It's a name that sticks in your mind, right? Like one of those names from the distant, you know, prehistory from the archaic times, Pangea, and it was real. Mm -hmm. There was a time when there was one single giant landmass stretching from North Pole to South Pole, and that was the land that both dinosaurs and mammals rose up on. And that was about 225 million years ago. Now, the story of mammals, though, goes back even 100 million years further to about 325 million years ago. That's when the ancestors of mammals split off from the reptiles on the great family tree of life. So the story of mammals, of making a mammal, of evolution, producing a type of small, furry, smart, warm-blooded animal, that story is a story of many, many, many hundreds of millions of years. And ultimately, it is our deep history. And that's why I think it is especially interesting and especially relevant for us to understand. One of the things that uh, I saw in the book is that mammals and dinosaurs have a common ancestor that they split off. And that to me really sparked my imagination because I had never considered, wait, what was, what would the precursor to a mammal be? These seem like such incredibly different species, obviously. What, what was that precursor like and how did that split happen? If you go way back in time to about 325 million years ago, there would have been a, a single common ancestor. And from that ancestor, eventually, you would get everything uh, as diverse as dinosaurs, turtles, crocodiles, pterodactyls, birds, and mammals. They would all later on evolved from that ancestor. The same way, you know, we all have grandparents and great-grandparents mm -hmm. and so on going way back. But that common ancestor would have lived in a world that would have been scarcely recognizable to us. This was the coal age, the time of the, the first big jungles in Earth history, when these primitive trees, these things stretched up a hundred feet or more into the canopy. They formed these dense jungles, these rainforests that clung to the coasts, all in the tropics and the subtropics. It was those trees that when they died and were buried, turned into a lot of the coal that we still mine today. And, and mm. that those jungles were so rich and so full of oxygen and so full of life that you had dragonflies the size of pigeons buzzing around. You had millipedes that were bigger than humans. In this weird weird, primitive menagerie, you had this common ancestor of all of these animals that would later evolve. And this ancestor would have been small. It would have been something you could hold in your hands. It would have been probably green or gray or brown, very drab colored. It would have been covered in scales. It would have had arms and legs that would have stuck out to the side. It would have sprawled when it walked. It would have moved very slowly. It would have been a very humble creature living, probably in fear of those giant dragonflies and millipedes, but from that humble ancestor, so much rich, diverse life would eventually evolve. And so we have to go back to that ancestor to start telling the story of the mammals. 
Can I ask, how do we know that it's a single ancestor? Because you say, hey, you know, we all come from different grandparents and great grandparents, right? Or sorry, uh, you know, the family tree does go back, but it's not the case that all humans came from one pair, right? As as is in, you know, the book of Genesis. Uh, like, uh, so how do we know that it's, that it's one uh, ancestor species rather than, hey, there were a dozen species that all uh, speciated in different ways? We have uh, two lines of evidence that help us put together these family trees. And one line of evidence is, is what I work on and what I devote my life to. I'm a paleontologist. I'm one of those people that goes out and digs up dinosaurs and fossil mammals. And I go out looking for bones and teeth and claws and skeletons and all these bits of prehistoric animals that we can find in the rocks, the clues from prehistory. So the fossils help us put together a family tree that shows these species over time. So we have fossils of things that approximate that ancestor. Uh, but we also have genetic evidence. We have DNA evidence from today's species. And we can see that everything as, you know, diverse from mammals to, to uh, reptiles, to you know, crocodiles, lizards, birds, all these things share features of the genetics that you could trace down to a single common ancestor. So although nobody was there to see this, this ancestral animal, mm -hmm. we can infer that it, it was there back in those coal swamp days. So as that single ancestor starts to speciate, right, into different, uh, there's, a, a, I suppose, a reptile direction and a mammal direction, what are those super early mammals like? Yeah. So Absolutely. So that ancestor would have somehow split into two populations. Mm. We don't have the exact fossils to show it. We have to infer it a little bit, but we know there would have been some ancestor and there would have been this great divergence, this, this fork in the road. And one side would eventually produce lizards and snakes and dinosaurs and birds and crocodiles and turtles and all those kind of reptiles. And the other side would lead towards mammals. And those first animals that split off from that ancestor on the mammal lineage, the mammal bloodline, they wouldn't have looked like a mammal. They would not have had hair. They would not have fed their babies milk. They would not have had big brains. Those things would come later. Those would be the things that would help define true mammals. But these ancestral mammals, these proto-mammals, let's say, the only thing that distinguished them from the other animals at the time was behind their eye socket, they had another hole in their head, and that <laughs> hole was uh, for, for muscles, the jaw muscles, the muscles that would open and close the jaws. So having huh. that hole allowed them to have bigger jaw muscles and a stronger bite. And it seems like a small huh. thing, but it was that one almost anonymous little feature of the anatomy that set the mammal line off on its own. And we still have that. We've inherited that from those early mammal Wait, ancestors. Wait, where's my hole? Is, is it so like the... Yeah, you feel your you feel your cheekbone, and I see you here on camera feeling your cheekbone, and I'm doing the same. Yeah, um, you know your eye is kind of above it, and you can feel underneath it. You know, there's a bit of a hole. You can feel your muscles, your cheeks. That is the remnant of that hole. Oh. That's it. It's kind of moved down because our face is really squashed. We don't have a big long snout or anything. Yeah. Uh, so that's the remnant of that hole, and those jaw muscles attach in that hole, and that's something that about 325 million years ago, those first mammal ancestors developed in the coal swamps, as there were those pigeon-sized dragonflies buzzing overhead, as these mammal ancestors were splitting off from the reptile ancestors, each group staking out a claim on their own. 
Now, that's not what I learned in elementary school as the difference between mammals and reptiles. <laughs> the thing that I learned, and by the way, this is very embarrassing to me because here I am coming at you uh, with stuff I learned uh, when I was in fifth grade <laughs> about hey, about mammals. I probably would have learned a lot of the same stuff, you know, yeah. and, and things are always changing in, in the field of paleontology because we're always discovering new fossils all the time. So this is a rapidly changing field and that's what makes it exciting. So I think we got to embrace it. You know, the <laughs> things we learned in school, they might have been cherished at the yeah. time, but we're often learning new things and, well, and future and I, generations will too. And I want to ask you what has changed about paleontology uh, a, a little bit later, but let me ask that the, the main thing I learned, I, if my if memory serves, is the difference between mammals and reptiles is mammals are warm-blooded and reptiles are cold-blooded, which I believe refers to temperature regulation, like how we are able to maintain our temperature de depending on, no matter where we go, as opposed to reptiles, which change it uh, depending on the environment. How did that come about? That seems like a pretty massive change. Absolutely. And and that's and that's correct. That's still a very valid oh, thing. Oh, thank God. <laughs> which is good. We don't you don't have to go back and track down your elementary school teachers and, you know, <laughs> scold them and chastise them. Uh, so it's true, right? So we can regulate our body temperatures. We are warm-blooded. And and what that means is so I grew up in the Chicago area. Uh, you know, I live in Scotland now. Uh, I've been here about 10 years, but I'm from I'm from the Midwest. I'm from near Chicago. Those winters are cold. But yeah. we can go outside in the winter. And when we go outside, we don't just die. <laughs> you know, we can breathe. Our, yes. We don't just freeze. Now, a crocodile, a lizard, like they couldn't really deal with the Chicago winter. So what's they the would difference? they would immediately like we'll die after a couple days, yeah. but they they will sort of right. immediately slow down and not be able they, they to would. handle it at all. Yeah, and 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 the difference is that mammals and also birds. You know, we have to remember birds who birds evolved from dinosaurs, which did evolve from reptiles. So some members of the reptile line figured out a way to do the same thing, but they figured mm. out independently. But what mammals and birds have been able to do is regulate body temperature. Using internal metabolism, we are able to have a high body temperature and a body temperature that is constant. That's why if we get a fever, even if our temperature goes a little bit up, we feel really sick because we have a, usually a very constant temperature. So mm. we have a high body temperature, a constant body temperature, and we regulate it internally. We have an internal furnace, whereas a reptile, you know, a crocodile, a lizard, a snake, they have to go out in, into the sun and basically use their body as a solar panel to heat themselves up. Yeah. So their body temperature fluctuates depending on if it's morning or night, if they're in the sun or in the shade. So that it, it's really hard if you if you're handicapped with that sort of, of system to be able to live everywhere in the world. But if you're warm blooded, you can regulate your own body temperature. Now, all of a sudden, you can live in many different places, whether it's hot or cold, whether you're on top of a mountain or down in a desert. The problem is, though, that it does come at a cost and you need to eat a lot of food and take in a lot of oxygen in order mm. to power that internal furnace. So our mammal ancestors they developed this higher metabolism and ability to regulate their body temperature. They developed this around the same time they were evolving hair 
to keep their bodies warm. Mm. Really, hair isn't just to keep warm, though. It's to help regulate that body temperature as part of the package deal of being warm-blooded. The same way birds that are warm-blooded have feathers to help regulate body temperature. And also around the same time, these mammals were getting bigger brains and they were developing milk to feed their babies. So these are the things that differentiate true mammals from those ancestors. So the ancestors evolved that hole in the head to have bigger <laughs> jaw muscles than some of those early proto-mammals. They develop higher metabolisms, hair, milk, and so on. They became the true mammals. And those things together, all those features I just mentioned, they are, are they constitute what we call the mammal body plan or the mammal blueprint. It is those things that set mammals apart from all other animals that are alive today. Nothing else has hair. Nothing else feeds its babies milk and so on. So it is. it was in the Triassic period then, about 225 million years ago, that those advanced features came together and you had proper true mammals emerge on the scene. Can I just ask a very stupid question? Question. That was a beautiful hey, picture. Any, any, any time, any question. And no, <laughs> and I believe me, no question is too silly when it comes to this stuff because we're talking about fossils. We're talking about yeah. stuff that happened hundreds of millions of years ago. Nobody was around to see it, so a lot of it's not obvious. It's not intuitive. We have to infer things. So ask away. Okay, uh, you're you're making me feel so comfortable. I really appreciate it. On my own show too. Um <laughs> you say we have an internal furnace. What is the internal furnace? Like how, how uh, hair obviously, but uh I, I'm not aware of an organ that's the particular heat <laughs> organ. So well, how do we do it? That is actually a great question. We do not have an extra organ. You know, we don't have a furnace organ like next to our heart or next to our <laughs> lungs. The way we do it is through chemical metabolic reactions at the cellular level. Wow. So it's really there's kind of extra machinery in our individual cells. A lot of it comes down to the mitochondria, the energy powerhouses of the cell. There's a lot more mitochondria in warm-blooded animals. And there's just different chemical reactions. And that's reaching the extent of my knowledge, I have to say. I'm not a physiologist. Okay. You know, I study the fossils. So now that kind of, I, that's about as much as I can explain about how warm-bloodedness works. And then I yeah. have to defer to a real expert on that's this That's just subject. a fascinating <laughs> thing to evolve that late to me. I mean, I don't, look, I'm, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but, you know, my understanding is uh, divisions and how, you know, cells work seem like something that would happen a lot in more in the primordial soup phase mm -hmm. rather than when, you know, you've got four legs and skeletons and things like that. Um, that's like a very fascinating adaptation. But obviously it's a huge part of mammals success because then you can be present in so many more places. You don't have to like restrict yourself to a particular temperature area in order to survive. You can go like, you know, forward the <laughs> walk through the snowbanks to get to somewhere new. Yep, and, and you're absolutely right. And I think it, it did take evolution a long time to develop that. And ultimately, I think it comes down to the cost. It's great. If you're warm-blooded, you have that internal furnace, you can have a high and constant body temperature. It allows you to live in so many environments. You don't have to bask in the sun in the morning to get yourself ready to just go out and walk around and eat and whatever. But it comes at a cost because you need to eat a lot more and you need to take in a lot more oxygen. So you need to find ways to eat more 
and bring in more calories and mm-hmm. breathe more efficiently in order to even get to the point where you can elevate your metabolism. And that is just very expensive to do. But once mammals figured it out in an evolutionary sense and they became warm-blooded and had these elevated metabolisms, then you see in the fossil record, these mammals, they spread all around the world and they start to diversify. And this is all happening, by the way, while dinosaurs are spreading around the world and right. dinosaurs are diversifying. And and this begins about 225 million years ago. And from that point until today, the fates of dinosaurs and mammals would be forever intertwined. Hmm. And at first, of course, the dinosaurs, they were destined for grandeur and they became bigger and bigger and bigger. And some of them became as big as jet airplanes. And you had T-Rexes the size of buses, you know, the biggest pure meat eaters that have ever lived on land. Then you had other dinosaurs evolve feathers and wings and become birds. For over 150 million years, mammals, true mammals with hair and warm-blooded metabolisms and feeding their babies milk, true mammals, they were living with those dinosaurs as the dinosaurs were getting bigger and bigger. Those mammals were forced into the shadows. They could Mm. not become very big in a world where dinosaurs were so big and were were filling those ecological roles. So the dinosaurs kept mammals small for a long Mm. time. For 150 million years, there were all kinds of mammals living with the dinosaurs, but never, as far as we know, did these mammals ever get bigger than a badger or a house cat, which is remarkable to think about. They were there for so long. But conversely, these mammals then became so good at being small, at being anonymous, mm. at living underground, at living in the undergrowth, at coming out at night. They became so good at living incognito, living anonymously, that they kept the dinosaurs big. And you never saw a T-Rex the size of a mouse or a Triceratops the size of a rat. You uh. didn't see it because mammals were kings and queens in those niches. So for a long time, you had almost this evolutionary equilibrium where the dinosaurs were the big ones. The mammals were the small ones. They were both doing very well in their respective ecological roles. And then that all changed when the asteroid hit. It's pretty wild that that would be the case worldwide as well. You would, I mean, is there some something different about the temperature or the flora or fauna of the time period that would mean that you know a reptile, a, a dinosaur, would have an easier time being large than a mammal? Because you know, as you say, today the largest animals in the history of the world are mammals. So you know, it's not as though warm bloodedness and milk are preventing you from being big. Um, so was it just the fact that dinosaurs were occupying that ecological niche, or was there some other pressure that was like selecting for big reptiles, small mammals at the time? It's it's another great question, and it's wild to think about it. Because exactly as you say, we know mammals can become big because the biggest things ever, blue whales, are yeah. mammals. And elephants are big, and polar bears are big. I mean, we, we, we see these big mammals all around us. We go to zoos, we see them. We watch nature films, we see them. So mammals can become big. They just were not able to become big until the dinosaurs were gone. And so was that because there was something that allowed dinosaurs to become big? And maybe dinosaurs were better at being big. That's possible. Dinosaurs, it looks like dinosaurs did have very efficient lungs, the same kind of lungs that birds have today that take in a lot more oxygen than mammal lungs. Mm. And we can tell that because those lungs have air sacs 
these balloons that extend out from them to store extra air, and those air sacs leave marks on the fossil bones, so we can infer that dinosaurs had those same lungs as birds. So cool. maybe having these more efficient lungs help dinosaurs become bigger, or maybe it was just a game of chance and contingency and timing. Maybe the dinosaurs just got bigger first, and then they seized those ecological niches and they kept them. Yeah. Or it might be a combination of both. But I think with evolution, you know, we're dealing with hundreds of millions of years. We're dealing with a lot of chance and a lot of unpredictability. And the fossils only tell us so much. And mysteries like these will continue to be out there. It's a funny thing with evolution. There's always this desire to know why. Because evolution, sort of the story of evolution often presents you with like half a why or, you know, hey, here's how something happened. But we often have this deep, well, but but why did it happen this way? When in reality, kind of what evolution really gives us is the account of, well, here's how it happened. But a lot of it is chance. And a lot of it is like there, there might not be a deeper why at the root there. Adam, you're a smart guy. I love it. I mean, this, this <laughs> you're, you're right. You're right. You know? And so if, you know, in addition to comedy, you should go to evolutionary biology, too, because you're totally right. Thank People you. ask these questions, right? Like, you know, why does the camel have a hump and why does the elephant have a trunk? And like, they're very difficult to answer, but we can get at the how. We can start telling the story. We can look at fossils and we can say, well, elephants actually started as these little animals the size of a poodle and they did not have a trunk and then they got bigger and then their mm -hmm. nostrils moved back. And so we can use fossils and genetics to to piece together the sequence of events, we don't always know exactly why something has happened. And a lot of times the why probably is unknowable, but we can tell the how. And that's really in the rise and reign of the mammals in, in the new book. A lot of it is storytelling, this narrative history of our ancestors leading up to the present day, the story of how our ancient mammal relatives, ancestors dealt with an ever-changing planet, changing climates, drifting continents, volcanoes, asteroids, the story of the what happened, the how yeah. it all went down. And that can make us think about the why. But I think we can at least revel in the what happened, because we have so much evidence for the what happened. And the what happened can help put our modern world into perspective, too. That is so cool. Well, I have to ask you about what happened with the asteroid, but we have to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Steve Brissotti. Okay, we're back with Steve Brusati. Um, so you took us through the history of mammals up until the asteroid striking the Earth. And I actually really want to dwell on this point. I could skip over it because we've all heard about the asteroid. We know the asteroid. We all aware of the asteroid. But I, I have to ask, as a kid, I remember hearing about the story of the asteroid and thinking at the time, well, this story is very convenient, isn't it? Like one asteroid comes and hits the Earth and everything changes. It sounds too apocalyptic. It sounds, it's such a wild story. As you say, the asteroid's six miles wide. That's very big. It's also not that big to wipe out an entire, you know, uh, group of species uh, from the Earth. So let's just, can, can we spend a moment on it? Tell me a little bit more about yes. it. And, how, and was that really the cause of this massive change? And how do we know that it was? I I'd love to talk more about the asteroid because it does seem maybe 
too convenient of a story, too good to be true, too apocalyptic. But it is true, it did happen, and it probably was the single worst day in the entire history of life. Now, it does sound like what I'm going to say, and what I talk about it in the book as well, I lay out the scenario, it, it does sound something like some, you know, really kitschy disaster movie where the script would be rejected by any good studio it, in Hollywood. It sounds like something you know? it's it sounds like something that would be debunked. It sounds like something where you learn it in school and then paleontologists now like, well, yes, there might have been an asteroid, but it, uh, right. it's not really that powerful. And I know the story's so good, but in fact there were many pressures at the time and like that's what I would expect you to say. And yet here you are coming at me with asteroid. So yeah, go on, please. It sounds like an urban legend. It sounds like the kind of thing the fact checkers would go nuts on. Um, yeah. But it, it actually happened. And it, it was it was only in 1980 that the geological evidence for an asteroid started to accumulate. So that's what we have to acknowledge first. We know there was an asteroid that hit the Earth 66 million years ago, right at the end of the Cretaceous period, and that no dinosaurs other than birds ever have been found after that asteroid. We know that asteroid actually hit the Earth. We have evidence that was left behind in the rocks, and we can see this evidence. So geologists in this sense are like detectives and they piece together this evidence. The first evidence was chemical. This chemical was found, an element called iridium that's very rare on the surface of the earth, but very common in outer space. Mm. All the rocks everywhere in the world from that exact time was just saturated with this element. So mm. this was the first sign. It was this chemical fingerprint of something extraterrestrial happening. And then other evidence accumulated. And by the early 90s, the crater was identified. And it it took it a while to find it because it's mostly covered by the water of the Gulf of Mexico today, this crater. But this crater, it's in Mexico, uh, this crater is over 100 miles wide. And we can tell from the size of that crater that it would have been made by an asteroid that was about six miles wide. Wow. And so that maybe that doesn't sound like a lot, you know, six miles wide. But this is a rock that was hurtling through outer space. It was traveling like 10 times faster than a speeding bullet. Okay, this wow. thing was just whizzing. I mean, just a random piece of space junk. It could have gone anywhere, but yeah. it made a beeline for the Earth. And this was the biggest asteroid to hit the Earth in at least the last half a billion years. It is not a normal thing for a six-mile-wide rock to hit the Earth. So that is basically a rock the size of Mount Everest, or it's about three times wider than the island of Manhattan. This is big, and it was traveling so fast that when it hit the Earth, it released as much energy as one billion nuclear bombs put together. Wow. And that energy instantaneously led to, you know, tsunamis, earthquakes, wildfires. The atmosphere spontaneously combusted across wow. the, much of the world. And so it was it was like a really kitschy disaster film, but it was real. This was all happening. And the the, the things that were alive 66 million years ago, T-Rex was there, Triceratops was there, as were Mammals, the small mammals. That They're all there looking up at the sky going, oh, shit. They're going, what the hell's going on? Because they would have had no idea. You know, yeah. they would have had no clue. They, they would have just one moment. There would have been this enormous explosion. And, of course, it would have been much worse the closer you were to it. Probably within a thousand miles of ground zero, like everything was vaporized. Just boom, just turned to ghosts. But there would have been no forewarning of this. So just imagine. Mm. And so dinosaurs had been 
ruling the world for over 150 million years. And then bam, this horrible, unexpected, completely unpredictable, random act of space violence happens. When you describe it as moving faster than a bullet, I start to get it. That it's the amount of trauma it would cause and the, the amount of energy being released is really fascinating to think about. So I'm sorry, please go on. Yeah, and so and so all of those things conspired to kill off the dinosaurs, but there was it, it was worse. It wasn't just the earthquakes, the wildfires, the tsunamis, all that stuff that happened in the moments and the hours afterwards. It was all of the dirt and grime and, and dust from the explosion and all the soot from the wildfires. All this stuff went into the atmosphere and it would have spread all around the world and it would have cloaked the earth in darkness for at least a few years, maybe even up to a decade. There was a global nuclear winter and the wow. earth went dark and cold. And so plants could not photosynthesize. They didn't have sunlight to make their own food. The forests collapsed. The, the plant eaters had no food to eat. They died. The meat eaters had no food to eat. They died. Ecosystems collapsed like houses of cars. The only reason anything survived is because seeds can stick around in the soil for a long time. So when the sun eventually came out a few years later, there were still some seeds around. Those seeds could wow. grow and reestablish the forest. But, but this was just an ecological disaster across the board. And the dinosaurs could not cope with that. But we had ancestors that stared down that asteroid. And, and this is worth just repeating and thinking about. We, you and me, had ancestors, mammal ancestors that survived, that endured, that had what it took during that worst moment of Earth history. And, and if we, if they didn't have the ability to survive, we would not be here talking. And yeah. what it came down to is that they were, they had, adapted so well to living in the shadows, to surviving in a world dominated by dinosaurs. They were good at being small. They were good at hiding. They were good at eating lots of different foods. Those things all came in handy when it just went to anarchy when the asteroid hit. And it is, it is for that reason that some mammals were able to survive. Now, a lot of mammals died too, by the way. Maybe even nine out of every 10 mammal species wow. died, depending on how you look at the fossil record and how you do your calculations. But mammals almost went the way of the dinosaurs. But we had an ancestor that was small, that could hide, that could eat lots of different food. That ancestor made it through. And then when the dust cleared and the fires were extinguished and the sun shone again, imagine you're that ancestor. You're this small little mousy thing and you're looking out at a mostly empty world. Three out of every four species that were alive the day the asteroid hit are gone. And the world is there for you to inherit. The opportunities <laughs> were abundant. That's when mammals finally, finally started to get bigger. They took over for the dinosaurs. They moved into those niches that T-Rex and Triceratops once held. They got bigger bodies, they diversified, and it was from that diversification that set the stage for all the bats and whales and monkeys and primates and all the other things that are alive today. Wow. I love that you emphasize that these were our ancestors, and it put the idea in my head that, like, in a way, you know, we uh, everyone has the member of their family who who does, like, the genealogy, who, like, dives into the uh, the court records and the, the census data to figure out who our ancestors were. You're doing genealogy for the human species in <laughs> away um like hey this is hey guess what uh, you know this is what our ancestors went through so you know be grateful to uh great 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 grandma mouse or whatever <laughs> yep this is like the 
deepest kind of deep time genealogy you can think of, which I think <laughs> makes it fun. But I think also, you know, we as paleontologists, we're always talking about family trees and what's related to what. And we were talking earlier about the reptiles splitting from the mammals on the great family tree of life. We use these metaphors and we use this way of thinking because just like us, like our own human families, Family trees are useful. Thinking about lineages, about genealogy, about ancestors. This is a way to understand change over time, understand yeah. where we came from. And so I, we as scientists uh, are, are constantly thinking about our deep genealogical past. So this diversification that you talk about, it's like this moment where we start spreading out as mammals across the world. The diversification is massive. I mean, just to end up as the largest creature in the oceans, just to dwell on that for a second, is wild. I'm assuming that mammals didn't get their start in the oceans, that that we got started on land. How the hell did we end up in you know in the in the in the, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, deep underwater, eating, you know, eating tiny shrimps? Evolution's remarkable. And I think one of the most remarkable stories is the story of whales. Because let's let's just start off with something that's basic, but also something that needs to be said, and it's something, don't be embarrassed if, if you've ever thought this, but look, dolphins and whales, I mean, they look like fish, right? I thought they were fish until I was probably yeah. in like sixth grade or something and, you know, saw this in a science lesson in school. And it blew Herman my mind. Melville I mean, calls like them that. fish and Moby yeah. Dick. Yeah, and I mean, you know, they live in the water, they have, you know, flippers and fins, and, you know, they, they look like fish, but they are mammals, and they have hair. They don't have a lot of hair, but you can still see hair around the eyes and around the mouth. They use hair as sensory organs, as whiskers. Uh, and, and not only that, but they're placental mammals like us that give live birth to, to well-developed young. And so that means they have placentas, that means they had umbilical cords linking the, the baby to the, to the mother, that means they have belly buttons. Whales have belly button. So if you ever doubt that whales are a mammal, they have hair, they have belly buttons. So so they're mammals. But how did mammals get into the water? Like, you're absolutely right. Mammals started on land. Way back in the coal forest times, those first proto-mammals that evolved that extra hole behind their eye to have the bigger jaw muscles, they were living on land. The first mammals that evolved hair and, and warm-blooded metabolism and everything we've been talking about, these mammals were living on land. The ones living underfoot of the dinosaurs were living underfoot of the dinosaurs. They mm -hmm. were burrowing, you know, into the ground. They were all on land. But then, a the asteroid hits, mammals survive, mammals diversify, and mammals diversify so much that they start exploring all kinds of new environments. Now, during the age of dinosaurs, there were lots of reptiles that lived in the water. They were not dinosaurs, strictly. They were cousins of dinosaurs, but there were plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs and mosasaurs and all these things we call marine reptiles. Well, these things died with the asteroid, too. So there was new opportunity in the oceans. Mm. And so mammals seized that opportunity. And about 50-ish to 55 million years ago, we start to see fossils of a small, little, meek, little mammal. And this, this mammal is only about the size of a little deer, like a little baby deer. Mm. You can call it Bambi if you want. It, it, <laughs> and and it, had, it had hooves. It had hooves. This was a mammal that lived on the land. But there's a few features of its skeleton. You can start to see, hmm, these things might be useful for also kind of moving around in the water a bit, but still primarily a land animal. And then we see this transitional series of fossils, one after the other after the other, showing how that type of little Bambi 
morphs into a Moby Dick. We see it getting bigger. We see it turning its limbs, its hands and feet into flippers. Uh, We see all kinds of changes. And and so ultimately from that comes whales. And, and, And so that's what we call a major evolutionary transition. It's when evolution takes one type of animal with a body that's really well suited for behaving in a certain way and living in a certain environment. You know, a hoofed animal with long legs for running on land. And it takes that type of animal and morphs it into something radically different with a new type of body that can now behave in new ways and live in new environments. A big animal with flippers that can swim in the water. And we have the fossils to show it. That's the amazing thing. This isn't just guesswork. We're not just assuming that whales evolved from land mammals. We have the genetics that tell us that whales are very close relatives of things like hippos. They're the closest cousins of whales. Uh, And and hippos spend a lot of time in the water, obviously. So now you can start to kind of see whales are part of this group of mammals with hooves that live on the land, but also spend some time in the water. So, so we have, we have the genetics and the fossils to prove it. And to me, that is really fascinating. And then once whales completely changed their limbs into flippers. There was this transitional stage where there were walking whales, where these whales could both swim and walk. They could live on land and in water. Wow, But then they totally divorced themselves from the land. They had full-on flippers. They lost their hind legs entirely. Once those whales went fully aquatic, they spread all around the world. And along with bats, which of course evolved wings and developed the ability to fly, the whales be- were the first truly global group of mammals, and they still are today. Yeah, that's one of the things that I always trip out about about whales when I'm like late at night, 2 a.m., looking up whales on Wikipedia, that like they are truly global. They live in like every ocean around the world, which is incredible. Uh, look, we, we only have 15 minutes left. We have to talk about humans. <laughs> yeah, if, if we must. If we must. <laughs> so, so can we take us from, you know, mammals diversifying, taking, taking over the world to the rise of humans? Um, and I'm, I'm curious if there's something, if there's something that like connects like what what is it about mammals that cause them to I'm getting I'm going to another why here, but you know, that cause mammals to uh you know produce humans as opposed to any of these other large groups of animals. I'll start with the caveat with a disclaimer uh, and just say that the history of mammals is not just about us. You know, the the 325 million years of history from the coal swamps leading up to the present, it was not some inevitable coronation march for humans. You know, we are one of more than 6,000 mammals alive today, and there are a lot of amazing mammals. Think of bats and whales and elephants and just the diversity of things mammals can do. Those types of mammals are remarkable in their own right, as our we, of course, because we are a single but sublime species of mammal that evolved enormous brains and really high intelligence and consciousness and the ability to work in groups and the ability to shape the earth in ways that no mammals ever had. So we come from the primate group of mammals, and I I, I save primates really for the last chapter in 
The Rise and Reign of the Mammals in the new book. Because I don't want people reading the book to think it's only all about humans. The only reason I'm telling this story is because it leads to us. That is a reason why we should be interested in the history of mammals, of course. We should be interested in our cousins and our ancestors. But I want people to appreciate them in their own right. So I, I bring humans in and other primates in the last chapter, and I start with the asteroid. When the asteroid hit, there were lots of mammals around, some survived, and then from those ancestors on the other side, the dinosaurs are gone, those mammals start to proliferate, and they get bigger, and they diversify, and they develop new ways of moving, and they spread around the world, and they start eating new foods. Big diversification. Now, some of those very first mammals that we see in the fossil record, we start seeing their teeth and their jaws turn up in abundance just about 100,000 years after the asteroid are the very first primates. Now, they were small. These were little things. You could hold them in your hands. They had gentle teeth, gentle cusps, little, little uh, mounds on their teeth for eating soft vegetation and fruit. That's something a lot of primates do. That's one way we can recognize their teeth. And from these small first primates, incredible diversification would later come. And so humans are one of many, many primate species. And what we can recognize as humans, basically primates that are big and stand only on their hind legs and have hands free for doing other things and have big brains and so on, these human type of primates first appear in the fossil record about five or six million years ago. Mm. Our closest relatives are chimpanzees. The genetics show that, and the fossils show that too. And so it was about six-ish million years ago we made our split from the chimpanzees. And the first humans, they started walking on two legs, and then they got bigger brains later. That's the, the evolutionary sequence. So it seems like standing upright, coming down from the trees, being able to walk on the ground... That probably freed our hands to do things, to build tools, to hunt, and that allowed us to bring in more calories and evolve these bigger brains. That's the, the general thinking. But we see humans start walking upright on two legs, then tools appear, then brains get big. From those first humans, things like Artipithecus, and then a little bit later, Australopithecus, Lucy. Maybe, you know, many people mm -hmm. have heard of Lucy, that famous fossil human. That's a, a belongs to a species called Australopithecus. These were some of the first fossil humans, and from these ancestors, this big bushy family tree evolved. And what's remarkable is that from the time of the very first humans, five or six million years ago, until only about 40,000 years ago, there were always multiple species of humans, oftentimes living together in the same environments. And that seemed wow. weird to us because we're yeah. one species. We're Homo sapiens. We're all the same. You know, no matter what differences we have in skin color, or eye color, or hair, or height, or whatever, we are all the same species. But in the past, there really were multiple species living together. And it, and it kind of makes sense when you think about it. You know, there's multiple species of cats living in today's world. There's different types of bears living in today's world. There used to be different types of humans. But it was only Homo sapiens when we moved around the world and we hunted and we changed environments and we would have fought and bred with some of these other species of humans that we ended up wiping them out one way or another and having 
the whole world to ourselves. And now it is us alone, a single human species, having this discussion, <laughs> pondering you, where we came from. You're, you're you're saying that you had sort of a positive tone in your voice, but it sounds very sad. Like now you said we're alone now, you know? Um, and, and as you're talking about Neanderthals, the Denisovans is another one of the speeches. Did I say That's it right? right. Yeah. Um, and so we wiped them out through what? Just through... Uh, not competition, but uh, just the, a sort of like what hegemony that forms that when you have uh, this many humans all all operating together is is we just sort of bred each other out of existence or do we just incorporate them into one species? Yes, we, we did in a sense. So you and I will both have you know, somewhere around 3% Neanderthal DNA Hell in yeah. our genomes. Which is wild. So actually, all humans today that do not have a, a, an unbroken family pedigree that's been on Africa the, the entire time uh, will have some Neanderthal DNA in their genome. Why is that? Well, humanity evolved in Africa from apes. The fossils show it. All these early human species are African. And then at different times, different waves would leave Africa because, you know, these were animals. They, they, would, they would be chasing prey. They would be tracking changing climates, migration corridors. So you had different human species leaving Africa at different times. And the most recent one to leave Africa was our species, Homo sapiens. We see the first fossils of Homo sapiens in Africa about 300,000 years ago, and then they start to appear across Africa, and then a bit later they appear outside of Africa. Now, when our Homo sapiens ancestors would have left Africa, they would have encountered other species of humans, descendants from those earlier waves of human species that had oh, left Africa before. And that's okay. what Neanderthals were, and that's what Denisovans were. And so these were other species of humans that would have been living in Europe and in Asia. So imagine you are one of these Homo sapiens ancestors of ours. You've been born in Africa and your band of, of humans, you're tracking prey, you go northwards, you go into Europe and you stop where the ice sheets are because this would have been the ice age. There would have been mile thick glaciers and you would have seen these in the distance and you would have stopped and maybe you would have sought shelter in a cave and you go into this cave and you sense something is amiss. And yeah. you, you, you light a fire and you see on the cave walls paintings in red ochre. And you see wow. tools on the ground, stone tools. And then you hear something behind you and this shadow flickers across the wall and you turn around and you see a creature that looks like you, a primate that's walking on two legs with a big head and mm. eyes facing forward, but shorter, stockier, a bigger brow. So, you know, Homo sapiens meet Neanderthals and this would have happened. And those Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, they were closely related enough that they could breed with each other the same wow. way that, you know, lions and tigers can breed with each other. So yeah. they would have made it. We have fossils of hybrids of a <laughs> Neanderthal parent, a Denisovan parent, a Homo sapiens parent, you know. So we did, in a way, absorb these other species, but we also probably did fight with them over territory yeah. and so on. We don't know the full story. It's a bit speculative. But what we definitely do know is that we would have mated with them. We would have hybridized. And the genes of Neanderthals and Denisovans, which are these other humans that were living in Asia, just discovered really over the last decade from DNA left behind in some of their bones, DNA that's so different from modern human DNA or Neanderthal DNA that it must be a new species. We still don't even have a skeleton of any of these Denisovans. The 
biggest prize in paleoanthropology for all you young researchers out there is to find a skeleton of one of these Denisovans. But wow. they, these Denisovans would have been in Asia when Homo sapiens left Africa. The Neanderthals would have been in Europe. We would have met them. We mated with them. Our genome shows it. We carry on the genetic legacy of those close human relatives that are no longer with us. And now is the reason these are different species because you said it's successive waves of humans leaving Africa. But, you know, we've also Homo sapiens has spread around the world. And in some cases, we didn't see those groups. Those groups didn't come back into contact with each other for many thousands of years. You know, you got say people in Japan, right? Nobody from Europe met a Japanese person for many hundreds of years. Um, but was it a much longer time period um, separating the you know, Neanderthals from the successive wave of Homo sapiens? Is that why they ended up being different species as opposed to just, you know, different sort of differentiated members of the same species? Yeah, it's hard to know the exact sequence of events that allowed Neanderthals or Denisovans to become distinctive enough that they are mm -hmm. classified as new species because they could mate with Homo sapiens. Yeah. So in that sense, you might think, well, maybe they're all just one big species or they're subspecies. It kind of gets down to semantics. But when it comes down to it, a Neanderthal, let's say, you know, their skeletons, their bodies, their physique was different enough from Homo sapiens that you can you know, classify them in one group or the other. So there's distinctive features of the skeleton. And also genetically, although Homo sapiens and Neanderthals did interbreed, genetically they were quite distinctive. If you have DNA from a fossil, you can see, okay, this has the Neanderthal genome, the Neanderthal signature, or this is Homo sapiens. You can build family trees based on the DNA and see the different clusters. And so it's because they're both anatomically and genetically quite distinctive that they are called different species. But we do have to remember they were similar enough and closely related enough that they could at least sometimes breed. Maybe yeah. that breeding wouldn't always be successful, but at least sometimes it was. And that's why we have these Neanderthal genes in our genome. Well, God, I could talk to you for a thousand years, um, <laughs> but we have to let you go in a little bit. So I, I want to find a note to end us on here. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons that you could describe mammals as reigning over the earth is that we as humans have this unparalleled ability to change the earth that we live on, that no other species has really had to the same degree. Um, but your the account you're giving us you know, it also gives me a sense of the immense amount of time that stretches back throughout history, the immense amount of changes that have happened uh, throughout the history of the earth. Um, and so, uh, you know, it reminds me that like the current world that we live in is not the one that is going to exist forever <laughs> and that, yes. that the earth is always changing. And so I'm curious from your view, when you look at this deep geologic evolutionary time, and then you look and then you refocus on the present day, what are the challenges facing mammals as a group, <laughs> right? What are, what, what should we be worried about as a, not just species, but entire, uh, group of species? I'm not going to pretend to be a futurist. I'm not going to look too far into the future. I, as a paleontologist, I'm comfortable looking into the past. I can tell you all about the past. And the past is relevant for context, for understanding our present world and thinking about where we may go in the future. But I don't want to get too predictive because when you get too predictive, it becomes really uncertain. What I do know is this. Climates are changing very quickly today. Temperatures rising very fast. There have been many other times in Earth history when there have been global warming episodes. The Earth has been through this kind of thing before. 
although it's happening much faster now than it ever has. It's happening it's, over the course of a hundred I mean, years yes, rather than tens of thousands. Very, exactly. And so we are kind of, and of course it's because of us too. So we are entering a state that is a bit different than anything that's come before. Yet, we can look in the fossil record and see what's happened in the past when temperatures have risen. That's what I want people to do. I want people to understand the fossils, appreciate the fossils, and see from the fossil record that when temperatures gone up X amount of degrees over a certain number of years, certain species die, certain types of species are better, better able to survive, and so on. We can get that context with the fossil record. I talk about this in the book, what some of the lessons are. I think when it comes down to it, ultimately, mammals are very resilient. Mammals have been through many things. Mammals have been through global warming spikes. They've been through ice ages. They've survived the asteroid. They've survived mm -hmm. big volcanic eruptions. They first developed on a supercontinent. They've continued to diversify as the continents have moved around. So mammals are resilient. And even during global warming episodes, they found a way to make it through. Although sometimes the dominant mammals have gone extinct and new ones have, have arisen in their place. Other times, a lot of mammals have actually gotten smaller when the temperatures have gone up. That's just a physiological thing, being able better to shed body heat. So those are the lessons from the fossil record. Um, the thing that we also see from the fossil record is that since Homo sapiens started moving around the world, something like 350 mammal species have died and maybe eaten. That seems like a big number. Maybe it seems like a small number, but it's about 5% of all mammals. Wow. So this is not a catastrophic number in the sense of mass extinctions. I said earlier that when the asteroid hit, 75% of stuff died. So we're not at mass extinction yet. Are we heading there? Maybe. What I will say is that mammals are probably at the most perilous position that we have been in since we had to stare down that asteroid. And it is largely because of climate change and environmental change, which is largely because of one single remarkable, but also quite destructive mammal species, that's us. But we also have this ability to understand what we are doing to the planet and to do something about it. The dinosaurs had no way to stop that asteroid. They didn't know what it was, they couldn't understand it. We now are perhaps the asteroid to other species today, but we have the ability to know what we're doing and to hopefully mitigate that. And looking into the fossil record, learning about our ancestors, learning about how real mammals, real ecosystems have responded to global warming and environmental changes in the past, that can give us important information to better prepare for our future. And that's where I want the conversation to be. I'm not going to sit here and tell you we're all doomed. It's, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that X percent of mammals are all going to be dead in X number of years. I can't look into the future. What I do know is things are changing fast. It's largely because of us. We have the ability to understand this. The fossils can help us understand this. And we have the ability to do something about it if we choose to do so. And it very much is a choice. And that is the essential message about climate change. And I really appreciate you sharing it with us. And it's so awesome that it comes from your understanding of this deep time and, and the changes that we've gone through. Uh, look, I, I hope you'll come back sometime and we can talk more because I, I literally could ask you questions for another three or four hours. So um, yeah, it's been it'd be fun. We talk about dinosaurs one day. We can. I, I love having these conversations and they're really, really fun. So please do have me back.
That's great. I absolutely will. Well, please, folks, check out The Rise and the Reign of the Mammals. You can get it if you want at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com slash books. Steve Brusati, thank you so much for coming on the show. Couldn't Can't thank you enough. Adam, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And what a great, fun conversation. And uh, if you know those of you that have listened, if, if you've had fun hearing this, I think you would enjoy the book. Uh, I'm easy to find on social media. So get in touch um, and let me know what you think about mammals. <laughs> great. <laughs> Thank you once again to Steve Busani for coming on the show. If you want to pick up a copy of his book, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, you can get it at our special bookshop at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman, and our engineer, Ryan Connor, and, of course, everyone who supports this show at the $15 a month level on Patreon. That's Adrian, Alexi Batalov, Allison Liparato, Alan Liska, Anne Slagle, Antonio LB, Aurelio Jimenez, Beth Brevik, Brayden, Brandon Sisko, Camus and Lego, Charles Anderson, Chris Staley, Courtney Henderson, David Condry, David Conover, Drill Bill, Dude with Games, M, Hillary Wolken, Jim Shelton, Julia Russell, Kelly Casey, Kelly Lucas, Lacey Tiganoff, Lee Lisa Matulis, Mark Long, Miles Gillingsrud, Mom Named Gwen, Mrs. King Coke, Nicholas Morris, Nikki Batelli, Nuyagik Ipaluk, Paul Mauk, Rachel Nieto, Richard Watkins, Robin Madison, Samantha Schultz, Sam Ogden, Shannon Grimmett, Spencer Campbell, Susan E. Fisher, Tyler Darach, and Whiskey Nerd88. If you want to join them or support us at any level, head to patreon.com slash adamconover. That's patreon.com slash adamconover. A big thanks to Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I record so many of these episodes on and thanks to Andrew WK for our theme song you can find me online at Adam Conover wherever you get your social media or at adamconover.net where you will also find my tour dates thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week on Factually Factually